0: unspeakable. Christ's Gospel includes things one may not yet understand. The Apostle Paul referred to hidden truths as unspeakable because they are not yet understood. Paul referred to those in possession of hidden knowledge as stewards of the mysteries of God This hidden knowledge is true but remains a mystery for those who are not shown it by God. One servant of God may know but be forbidden from revealing a matter, while another is later commanded to reveal it. Therefore, because one has a Bible, one should not assume it contains all of God's words, that He has not revealed more, or that He will not reveal more. An infinite and eternal God has spoken many things and will yet reveal more things. Some truths are already in Scripture but hidden from view by God's decree. Christian scriptures declare, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter, Proverbs 4, paragraph 1. So all should search out matters God has concealed to see more of His glory. See also the glossary entry, Mysteries. Urim and Thummim Lights and Perfections It appears from early church history the term Urim and Thummim was not used until 1835. Prior to that, the term applied to the instrument was interpreters. The place where God resides is a great Urim and Thummim. This earth, in its sanctified and immortal state, will be made like unto crystal and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom, or all kingdoms of a lower order, will be manifest to those who dwell on it. And this earth will be Christ's. Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 1, paragraph 12 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. And a white stone is given to each of those who come into the celestial kingdom, whereon is a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. Veil You were a spirit before you were born. You were there when some were chosen to be rulers, or in other words, teachers. You have within you a spirit that was in that group. You saw and participated in what went on, and have that somewhere still inside you. It is kept from you by the veil of flesh now covering your spirit, Hebrews 1, paragraph 32. Somewhere within you lies the record of heaven. Or more correctly, the record of heaven. If you gain access to it, it has the capacity to teach you the truth of all things. Within it is such an abundance of truth that the things of God are not hidden from you, neither far off. It is not in heaven, so that you ask, Who will go to heaven to bring it to us? It is not beyond the sea, that you should ask, Who can go to bring it to us? But it is very close to you, in your own mouth, in your own heart, that you can do what is asked of you. Obedience is the means by which all men and women gather light. The commandments are revelations of the inner person one ought to become. They are how one grows in the flesh to comprehend God in the Spirit. The body is a veil that keeps man from him. By subordinating the will of the flesh to the will of the Spirit, one gains light and truth. The first step along the path is to make it through the veil. Not the veil in a temple, or in a rite offered by men to one another we must be brought through the veil back into the Lord's presence. That is the step which stops most of our progress. By and large we don't believe it possible. We make no attempt because we think it is not available, or we should not be trying to become more than our leaders, or we are not qualified, or some other false teaching which hedges up our progress. Perhaps the greatest idea to man's mind is that all can converse with God through the veil, preliminary to entering into his presence. In that idea is found the promise of communication with God, followed by him allowing one to visit with him through the veil. Every soul who has faith in that and acts consistent with their faith will obtain the most glorious assurances from God. They will not be barren or unfruitful in their knowledge. When the Lord determines a man's righteousness is acceptable before him, then he redeems that man by parting the veil and bringing him into the company of the redeemed. C T N C 69, paragraph 19. It is a thin veil, not a wall, that separates you from God. Do not let it become insurmountable. It was always meant to be parted. In a temple ceremony, a veil is used as a symbol to separate the initiate from the Lord. This veil is a symbol of the division between heaven and earth, between time and eternity, or between the sacred and the commonplace. Beyond the veil are the angels, gods, and spirits. Here there are mortals. Passing through that veil happens in one of two ways. One way is to gain knowledge of God's mysteries and to live true and faithful to them. Passing through the veil is symbolized in the temple ceremony, but the reality of it actually happened in the case of the brother of Jared. And because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. And he saw the finger of Jesus, which when he saw, he fell with fear, for he knew that it was the finger of the Lord. And he had faith no longer, for he knew, nothing doubting. Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus, and he did minister unto him. Ether 1, paragraph 14. Temple Rites explained that anyone who arrives at the veil boundary who has been true and faithful in all things is entitled to converse with the Lord through the veil. Once the Lord is satisfied they possess the required attributes, then they can enter into his presence. The second way of passing through the veil is explained by Alma, Behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life, Alma 19, paragraph 6. The ceremony employs two veils to symbolize the separation between mortality and eternity, the sacred and the profane. The boundary veil is used during the ceremony to test the initiate before permitting the individual to enter into the presence of the Lord. The second veil is used to symbolize the role of the woman. Except for what happens in the womb of the woman, everything in mortality is subject to entropy. Women have the ordained power to produce new life, everything else decays and dies. Her power defies the universal effects of entropy. Mothers are the physical veil between pre-earth spirits and physical bodies inhabited in mortality. They clothe children in the veil of flesh. This power used to be honored in the LDS Temple Veiling of Women. This power to give life has been regarded in almost all societies as something sacred and holy. In this current coarse and vulgar society, the idea has been rejected, as a matter of law, that women engage in a sacred and holy labor when bearing children. The ceremonial boundary veil that acts as the divider between worlds represents the physical boundary at which the initiate must stop when being tested by heaven. This testing takes place before they are permitted to pass from earth to heaven, from time to eternity, and from the commonplace to the sacred. In direct contrast, the veil of the woman represents the transition of pre-earth eternal spirits into mortality, when the sacred becomes embodied. She, along with God, veils and flesh the spirits from beyond the veil. You have clothed me with skin and flesh, and have knit me together with bones and sinews, Job 4, paragraph 10. Therefore, the woman's veil represents the inverse of the other veil. The boundary veil symbolizes losing the flesh to leave mortality, and the woman's veil endows the immortal spirit with mortal flesh. Like her heavenly counterpart, the woman represents creation. This process, like that which is beyond the boundary veil, is sacred. Both veils symbolize the sacred. Woman is veiled in temple ceremony to show that in a fallen world, trapped by decay and death, creation continues through her. Life springs anew, and what is sacred and pure is born into mortal life. It is not proper to remove the ceremonial veiling from the woman unless the intention is to abort the symbol of new life and creation. It destroys the symbol of the sacred power given to woman. Virtue Virtue is almost always passive, constraining from abrupt and improper behavior. It contains and limits. It is a strong barrier against misconduct. It has protocols and expects behavior to be mild. It is not the same as righteousness. Righteousness will often require or impose action, sometimes action that exceeds mere virtue. Nephi was constrained to kill Laban. Elijah mocked the false priests. Christ rebuked the scribes and Pharisees as unclean whited sepulchres filled with rot and decay. These kinds of righteous actions are not ungoverned or spontaneous. They are carefully controlled and are undertaken only when the priesthood holder, whose thoughts are virtuous and disciplined, is led by the power of the Holy Ghost to rebuke sharply. Virtue can be offended by righteousness. Righteousness controls, and virtue surrenders. Whenever it is necessary to do so, virtue yields every time to righteousness. Voice of God. Every person who has ever lived is one of the kind. All can hear God's voice, but how it comes to each person may be different from how it comes to anyone else. The description frequently found in Scripture is merely that the word of the Lord came to the prophets. See, for example, Ezekiel 5, paragraph 2, Hosea 1, paragraph 1, Jacob 2, paragraph 3, and TNC 115 paragraph 1. It can come to the mind. It can be heard in the mind. It is sometimes sensed in the impressions. It can come as a dream. Or it can be a conviction that comes with palpable certitude. However it comes, and in any individual case it may do so in an altogether unique way, it comes from a source outside of man. It is often surprising and not at all what was expected. It can be inconvenient, requiring what one would not voluntarily seek. These are not just emotions or feelings. Rather, there is an intelligence to it which originates from outside of the person and delivers a message, not feelings, but a message. After receiving the word, confirmation follows. The confirmation allows a person of faith to see evidence or support for their belief and trust in God. Again, when it comes to the confirming sign that follows faith, the variety of forms is unique to the person. First, however, remember that all are unique and will have unique experiences in relating to God. Given the care with which each person has been organized as an individual creation, how can anyone expect communication with the Lord to be standardized? Why would the way in which he speaks with one person be identical to the way in which he speaks to all others? Why wouldn't he carry on a conversation with each of his children in ways adapted to the individual child? As one recognizes his voice through the eyes of faith, he or she will begin to realize it comes from him. The ordinary contains the extraordinary. You must see the extraordinary in the ordinary before the truly extraordinary opens up to you. You must have faith before you are shown signs. There are a variety of ways in which one receives communications from the Lord. When it progresses from initial stirrings to the voice which one hears within, one should not assume it will be a uniform experience. The voice is clearly not one's own and introduces ideas or concepts that are clearly not one's own. A person can have a dialogue with this voice in which his or her ideas are juxtaposed with those coming from the other. It is not audible, but one hears it inside. It is clearly not one's own voice, but that of another. The great difference between prophets and others is not in God's willingness to speak but in the refusal to listen. Some listen, and they are prophets. Others do not and struggle to believe the prophets. God however, has and does speak to all. We are unique, and God's ways of speaking to each of us is as unique as each of us. We do ourselves a great disservice when we attempt to fit ourselves into a singular, stereotypical persona seeking only a singular way for God to talk with and to us. We make ourselves into something we aren't, in the search to find what cannot be found that way. If we demand only the extraordinary before we will recognize His voice, we run the risk of looking in the wrong way for Him. His voice is there. He speaks to all of us but we can miss it if we are not attuned to listen. You may never be able to hear God speak to you in the way in which others hear Him. If you determine He must speak to you in a specific way and not in any other way, you can go a lifetime without ever having a conversation with Him. He longs to speak with each of us. Within each of us there is something uniquely attuned to Him. How he reaches out to you may be as singular and unique as you are, and you can be assured he is reaching out. In fact, God is rather noisy if you will allow him to be. We were never intended to live without a direct connection to him. How each of us receives contact with God, how we hear his voice, and what gifts we possess are unique. There is no single, universal way for one to hear his voice and know that he is. 15c 36, paragraph 8. And so it is a mistake to ignore your own unique talent for hearing your Father in heaven. He did not send you here powerless to hear him. But it will require you to develop the capacity. Relying merely upon your feeling or emotions alone is insufficient. You must learn to hear his voice. All of the prophets from Moses to Gideon to Elijah received contact from God. They were certain who it was that spoke to them. They obtained intelligence, heard his voice, and learned from him. None of them relied upon mere feeling but instead heard words from him. He spoke with them just as he did with Nephi. See Nephi's Isaiah, chapter 18, for a more detailed discussion. See also the glossary entry pray. Washing away of sin. The anointing of the Spirit. Watch. To be observant and detect elements of control, dominion, and compulsion. To become vigilant in separating the will of men from the will of God. It is to keep the Lord's teachings in mind and to measure any person's teachings, actions, and persuasions against the standard the Lord has explained. See 3 Nephi 8, paragraph 8. Waxing strong. To be increasingly determined or committed. What lack I yet. Complicated or intricate skills are taught one step at a time. There should be in the mind of the student only one thing to do. There is always only one thing to do. There is never more than the single thing to be addressed, and it is the thing most wrong at the moment. Once that is addressed and corrected, then it is possible to move on to the next thing, where again, there is only one thing to do, and it is the next thing in the sequence. When the next skill is acquired, then there is still only one thing to do. So it is here. There is only one thing for you to do. You will know what you need to do within the context of your own life. But whatever it is that most hinders you is the one and only thing you have to do. When it is resolved, then you move on to the next thing. Sometimes we all have blind spots about our own shortcomings. If you cannot figure out what the thing you most need to resolve is, then ask the Lord. He has always been willing to answer the sincere inquiry of what lack I yet? The answer to that question is the one thing you should work on. But never work on three, or thirty, or fifty things at once. What or which is right? Therefore, ye must always pray unto the Father in my name. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. 3rd Nephi 8, Paragraph 8 The whole meaning of this promise is captured in the qualification that it must be that which is right. If one acquires an understanding of what is right, then by asking for it, one submits to the Father's will. Even if one would shrink from it, beg that it may pass from him, or cower at the thing required, when one asks the Father in Christ's name for whatsoever is right, despite his desire for things to be otherwise, he is going to become one with them. Then he will be like them and learn the great truth that the will of the Father is indeed whatsoever is right. Joseph Smith explained it when the Lord has thoroughly proved him and finds that the man is determined to serve him at all hazards, then the man will find his calling and his election made sure. Then it will be his privilege to receive the other comforter, which the Lord hath promised the saints. The way heaven knows a man has arrived at that point is by the offered prayers. When they seek to do the will of the Father, and the requests are what is right, then the heavens cannot withhold anything from that man. Indeed, the Lord will prompt the right questions by what the Lord says to that man, so that the knowledge of that man will reach into the heavens. See Ether 1, paragraphs 12-14. Therefore, one must not only pray always unto the Father in Christ's name, but one must also grow in understanding, humility, and meekness so as to ask the Father for that which is right. This is a process.